Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. You can keep up with us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You will find us wherever you get your podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, just to name some of those platforms. And we're at that same username at Radio Islam USA. So please do subscribe, rate, review, share. That last one is really important because sharing is what? Sharing is caring. All right. Uh, Radio Slam family. Um, before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Recycle Processes. Recycle Processes. Thank you very much for your continuing support. All right, family. Before we begin, I just want to eh, share a bit of a stream of consciousness if, if I can. When I refer to the Radio Slam family, if you're listening for the first time, when I say Radio Islam family, I'm talking about a diverse group of people. I'm talking about, really, I'm talking about America, right? Because America, this idea of, what is it? E pluribus unum, right? Out of many, one. Uh, and when you hear ummah, if you are not Muslim, if you're not familiar with some of the Islamic terminology, when you hear ummah, you're not just hearing a reference to Muslims. You're hearing a reference to a pluralistic community. So that's what I'm that's what's in mind when I'm thinking when I say Radio Islam family, I'm thinking about the fact that I know we have Muslim listeners, of course, but I know that we also have Jewish listeners. We have Christian listeners. We have Sikhs. We have uh, black, white, Arab, Latinx. I think there's some of everybody that is listening and thus a part of this family, this Radio Islam family. Okay, that's it. And the the main thing that any family wants is you want security. Right? First and foremost, you want security for your family. You want peace, you want equity, you want opportunity, you want justice. And that's really what this is all about. And whether we're talking about movies or we're talking about uh, humanitarian causes, politics, social justice, whatever it is, at the end of the day, those are the things that lie underneath all of these conversations that we have. Okay, enough rambling. Um, we want to get into today's conversation. And today we want to take a look at the uh, recent march that took place. As a matter of fact, I believe it was marches that took place in many different locations, but one in particular, uh, that took place in Bangladesh, where 200,000 Rohingya refugees, they marched for Genocide Day. This is two years after expulsion from Burma. And we've talked about this. Uh, we've talked about this quite a few times uh, in the past. And we've had on experts, uh, uh, the, not the least of which being the chair of the Burma Task Force, uh, Imam uh, uh, Abdul Malik Mujahid. Uh, who is also the president of SoundVision. And in those conversations, we've talked about the, I guess, the the series of events that have led up to that genocide day, that led up to uh, the Rohingya being attacked, that led up to their villages being bur burned and, and, and razed to the ground, that led up to the rapes and torture uh, and this mass exodus. 
All right. We've talked about a lot of those things. But as I say, recently, just a couple of days ago, 200,000, an estimated 200,000 Rohingya refugees, they took part in a genocide day rally. And um, this is important because it, it's really it's it's distressing in moments. But, you know, overall, we can't afford to allow ourselves to become distressed. But there are moments where we look at situations like this and we feel the weight of them. We feel the gravity. We we see the victims. We see the refugees and we see the, the trauma that they are dealing with as they try to make homes in new places. Uh, and among them, we have a, a, a significant Rohingya um, refugee community that is growing and growing right here in Chicago. So uh, first off, I want to keep those, not just the, the refugees themselves, uh, these human beings, but I also want to just keep those who are trying to meet their needs and trying to help them acclimate to a new uh, a new society, right? New environment, a new, just a, just a new world. I want to keep those folks in our prayers. So we pray for their well-being. We pray that they continue to have the, the, the spirit uh, and the, uh, the drive and the love. Because all of these, whenever you are servicing, you are taking care of, of those who are injured, it has to come from a place of love if it's going to be sustained. Uh, so we pray that the love that they have, it, it continues and it grows. Uh, so just may, may, may Allah continue to bless them in their efforts and, and bless those that they serve. All right. Now, we want to share a recent interview that Mohammed Tanvir, he did with, um, with a Rohingya activist. As a matter of fact, he's a linguist that works with uh, the Rohingya community in a number of different ways. And this is uh, this is an on-site interview. So you're going to hear some of well, you, you'll be able to tell it, obviously, because you'll hear some of that background kind of news like this is right on the street and they're talking. But we thought that this was beneficial, especially in light of recent uh, events um, to share with you. So we hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Hi, good morning. Um, so could you just please introduce yourself and what you do for the Rohingya people? Sure. Um, my name is A.K. Rahim. I'm a sociolinguist. I study languages, especially languages in a humanitarian context, and how it helps or um, harms the community uh, in terms of communication. And what was your job uh, at the camps of the Rohingya people, and how did you find that job? Um, how I found that job is actually quite interesting. Um, it was a friend from college. Uh, this was back in 2017. She was there because she was already a humanitarian, and I was working in New York. And uh, she just called me one day, and she was like, I'm having drinks with a bunch of humanitarians that want to start a program here um, looking at languages. And they're like, you are probably the only person that knows uh, the languages here, and also being a linguist and humanitarian, it might be a good fit for you. So I spoke to the, the organization that night, actually, and then I started working remotely for them, like the next week, and then I left for Bangladesh uh, December 2017. And um, so in the beginning, it was kind of uh, 
the organization is called Translators Without Borders, and what they basically do is they try to uh, create glossaries and try to create also like, and they do a lot of translation work. Um, they have this whole system online, um, but that that wasn't necessarily what I was going to do. I was going to create a network of translators um, in the context. Uh, translators and interpreters and yeah just create a robust network but it ended up happening what ended up happening was I became a full-time researcher that was my background and uh, I was looking at the different language flows involved um, basically in Bang in, in Cox's Bazaar uh, which is in Bangladesh um, the language flow usually goes from English to Bangla which is the national language in Bangladesh and then there's a regional language called Chittagonian and then finally it goes to the Rohingya language. And the Rohingya people themselves also know how to speak Burmese, or Myanmar language as it's called. Uh, so you have five languages that intertwine and that can be really confusing for humanitarians especially. So that's what we looked at. We looked at the different language flows, um, where the barriers could be, and um, so yeah. And also looking at how like Bangla and Chittagonian can also be adjusted to fit the needs of the Rohingya community. And so what were some challenges or surprises that you found like, when you were at the camps? Mm -hmm. Well, first, there's like the physical challenges, you know, like it's a sprawling, like, megalopolis. It's massive. It's huge, you know. It's, you stand um, on top of the highest hill, and as far as the eye can see, it's just camps, you know. Um, so it's the sheer physical barriers um, of working in a context like this that was very... Um, overwhelming at first. Um, I, when I went there, it was like December, January, so it was kind of cool, the weather was nice, but as soon as, you know, Feb, March started, it got extremely, excruciatingly hot, and we were in the fields, like, almost, like, four or five days a week, you know, right. so um, physical toll at first was really um, pretty heavy, then you got used to it, basically, you know, you're like, that's your day-to-day -day job, you just go out there. Right. Um, the other thing is also just in terms of logistics and just, um, yeah, it's you're working in a humanitarian context, and you can't always have all the amenities for a full-fledged research project all the time. Um, when we're used to doing research here in the states or any developed country, you have all your like Excel files and you know all your literature and all that. You don't have that, and you also have a really crazy time crunch because we work directly with other um, UN agencies, um, with other organizations like. Um, save the children and like Medicine Sans Frontieres, like all those different organizations and they had deadlines and we were always working along with that. Um, so yeah, it was just compounding factors that were quite um, challenging. But I guess one of the main challenges for me was more of an emotional challenge because you see a group of people, um, they were quite, you know, new at that point. It was December and they came like late August. Um, they they were, there was just so much uncertainty, and in every single interaction you have with the Rohingya community at that time, they would just talk about the uncertainties. They're like, we don't know what our future is, we don't know what's happening, we don't know if we're going to stay here, etc. You know, so right. that really seeps into you, and it really affects your day-to-day -day work. You know? mm -hmm. um, but yeah, those are some of the challenges. Yeah. Um, so, what changes did you observe when uh, at your time at the camps, if any? Uh, mm -hmm. So, because I had a very specific focus, which was language, I can right. only speak for language right. here. Um, I can give some overall changes, I guess, but language is my primary focus. Um, when they first came to Bangladesh, um, remember a vast majority of the Rohingya community is 
uneducated or undereducated. Right. So they don't have education in any language, any of these languages that I spoke to you about. Um, so because they're so undereducated, getting basic services was a major hassle, major barrier for them, right. um, whether it's health or you know distribution, etc. Um, so observing that in the beginning, and then over the past one and a half years, you just see them adapting to the environment linguistically. They are very, although yes, they're undereducated, they're very linguistically rich because they've been surrounded by so many different languages. So they absorb languages very, very quickly. So you see their language adapting, you see the people adapting, and they are getting their basic services um, one way or another. But um, so yeah, that was, that was amazing to see. You also see a lot of, um, especially the women, at first they were very obviously conservative and um, uh, very shy to talk to, etc. But now, because of the constant interaction with the humanitarian community, um, you see more openness and more eagerness to talk about their experiences and also just giving us a lot of information and data to work with um, because what we realize is that the Rohingya language has different dialects and sociolects. Um, sociolects means social, social dialect, different strata of society has a different way of speaking. Um, so the women have a different way of speaking and at first we kind of hypothesized, it was a conjecture that okay, because of these uh, segregation they speak differently, but through um, past several months we've been able to really um, substantiate our hypothesis that yes they do speak you know differently there are terms that they don't understand so when you do create programs you have to use that language okay that's very interesting yeah um so do you, did you see that sometimes uh, needs were being met and other times needs were not being met uh, for the Ringo people obviously it's a camp for refugees so resources and distribution of resources is very different. Mm -hmm. um, could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So definitely, um, you know, there's real hard, you know, hard evidence and that there's anecdotal, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, it, you know, if you go by the numbers, all the Rohingya are getting what they need, they're getting their basic needs met, um, etc. Uh, but then you dig in a little, you know, after hearing the anecdotal evidence from the people from different communities, and you see that life is not just about getting your, you know, rice, oil, rations, and a blanket. You know, there's far more to life than just those, you know, distribution um, uh, items. And they necessarily weren't getting... Um, a fulfilled life, of course. You know, you're, you're living in a camp surrounded by hundreds and thousands of people. There's no privacy, right? There is no entertainment. I mean, those are basic needs of a human. And one of the main things that we realize is that um, teenagers, well, male teenagers particularly, um, from the ages of like 15 to like early 20s, they didn't have anything to do. They couldn't go to the school, the temporary learning centers, and they can't be employed because they're not over 18 or 21, depending on who's hiring you. So there was just this group of, you know, people just hanging out, having nothing to do. So, I mean, these are basic things that we don't think about um, when we create camp systems and, like, um, that people have different needs and you can't fulfill all those needs, you know? So it, it, it's, it's kind of those catch-22s of all of these programs that we create that you can't satisfy everyone. Um, so... Do you have any individual stories that you would like to share, um, keeping obviously the people's names anonymous? Mm -hmm. uh, anything that stuck out to you while you were there? Uh, definitely. Um, for me, I mean, I want to share more about the resilience of the community than 
you know, of course, there are harrowing experiences, which, you know, we don't even have to mention because it, it's, it's so traumatic. Right. But I would like to talk about a particular person. I'm not going to name name, but he was um, a very close associate of mine, and we worked very closely. And he was a uh, Rohingya, but he came um, uh, not in this influx, but a previous influx. And he was probably one of the smartest person I've ever met. But the thing is, he's never been to like a proper school. He's right. never, because he was a refugee in Bangladesh and they were not allowed to go to school, he's never been to a university or a college or a high school even. And yet, he was brilliant. The amount of knowledge he had about the different languages and culture, his ability to speak four languages fluently without even taking a class in them, just like absorbing it, right. um, that just shows the sheer resilience of a group of people that are stuck in a crossroad region. Like you know, it, it's basically um, a crisis crisis that's happening because of its geographic and geopolitical position. You know, and here he is. He just came out of that. You know, all the the ashes in a way and he's, he's surviving and not only surviving he's thriving you know yeah. and to see those kind of people it's not just him there's many people like that um, it just gives you hope for this community um, knowing that there are people that could really support this community if the international community really puts a scaffolding under them you know it's uh, many people think it's a it's a you know lost and it's a lost case you can't really help them but internally there's so much energy so much talent that mm -hmm. it can really hold up a you know whole nation a community identity yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of uh, the national stage or the international community itself um, what was your experience working for an NGO what are some strengths and what are some things that they could be doing better mm -hmm. um, Working in a humanitarian context in an NGO, it's difficult because, especially, I'm going to put a, a personal twist here, like, if you are of South Asian Muslim background, but you're working in a community that's heavily dominated by, you know, let's say, white people, um, Western folks, um, you're kind of stuck in between. You're seen as a link between that culture and Western culture, but at the same time, you're you're not completely part of either you know cultures, you know. So you're always torn. Um, another thing is NGOs themselves. There obviously a lot of programs are really dependent on funding, and funding is always an issue. You know, yes, a lot of money pours into it, but how it's allocated, different projects is really you know complex, and that complexity can really get uh, really get into the uh, the actual services you want to provide for the community the working right. with community um, so hopefully they're trying to fix that yeah. the budgeting issue the finance issue um, the other thing is also in terms of uh, people that can actually communicate with the Rohingya community uh, very few and far in between uh, I would highly highly encourage people that do know either Rohingya or Chittagonian or Bangla or even any South Asian language like Urdu or Hindi to really go there and help them out. Um, at least there's a cultural semblance, at least there's a cultural like awareness right. that can help in the uh, response. Um, 
it goes a long way, you know, it's not, you know, you don't have to go there for a year, year and a half, just several months, it, it, it helps a lot. Yeah, that's, that's really good to hear. Um, so, has there been any talk about a proposal relocation of the Rohingya people, or any way to, you know, not have them stay in refugee camps indefinitely? Yeah, I mean, that's a perennial conversation that goes on probably like every month, yeah. um, both from the government, from the international community, um, but to be honest, um, first of all, you have to look at, the because I was also in Myanmar, I was on the other side where um, they were actually kicked out from, I was in right. uh, Rakhine and Sidway, and you'll realize that the country itself does not want them back, right? Okay. So where are you going to send them back to? Right. The places that they fled from, their own hometowns, they were raised to the ground. Cement was like, you know, poured onto their homesteads, and the new buildings were made for the Rakhine community to move into. So even if they go back, where are they going to go back to? They're not going back to their homes, they're going to go, go back to another concentration camp, basically. Um, so in Sidway Township, for example, um, the Rohingyas are all cloistered together in an IDP, um, and, I mean, IDP camp, and basically they've been living there for the past seven, eight years. And no, no change has happened. No one's talking about, you know, even moving them back to their own homes in a town that's 15 minutes away. Right. So let alone 700,000 people that fled, I, I don't see them going back anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. So, speaking of uh, the Rohingya people and their refugee camp, uh, what has been the uh, response from both the Bangladeshi community and the Bangladeshi government of, you know, the influx of people? Mm -hmm. um, I think the community, the Bangladeshi local community, the host community basically as we call them, and the government, they've different their outlook. Um, remember the government, in a way, is benefiting from this. Right. There's international spotlight, they did a great job actually at, you know, maintaining security and, you know, hosting the community. So there's a lot of kudos from the international community for the Bangladeshi government. Right. And, I mean, there was an election last year and, you know, Sheikh Hasina kind of wrote on top, you know, she, she, she wrote that whole platform with the whole Rohingya uh, uh, message. Um, but at the same time, they're very wary because the Bangladeshi uh, people themselves, especially the local community in Chittagong, which is the state where they're in, um, they're not really happy having a like million plus people that right. just, you know, in an already pretty congested place. Um, and yeah, their natural resources were kind of, you know, um, uh, spoiled. They, they, their culture is changing, as they like to say. Um, there's huge like economic disruption because there's this huge influx of cheap labor all of a sudden. Yeah. So they're not happy, you know. The people aren't happy. But with that said, the area of uh, Chittagong, Cox's Bazar, and Ukia, where all these uh, uh, refugees are. That place was probably the most underdeveloped part of Bangladesh prior to this influx. And all of a sudden you have this huge international presence. And people back in the day that made maybe, you know, one dollar a day just by doing like, you know, daily labor and farming and whatnot, they're making a hundred dollars per day by doing translation work or like random stuff or being employed by the NGOs in different capacities. So their economy just blossomed and boomed, you know. There's like roads that never existed. Within a year, you have roads. So it's really mixed. There's some people, of course, that are like benefiting, but a lot of people aren't. 
So there's a tug, you know, tug of war going on there. Yeah. Okay, and uh, is there anything you would like uh, us, like uh, us, for, as a nonprofit organization that's advocating for um, better uh, lives for the Rohingya people, to be aware of, or any suggestions that you have for our organization? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I've been part of Burma Task Force for quite some time. I really like what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Yeah, it's great and all that we're doing all this like research and humanitarian efforts, etc. But at the end of the day, if you're if you're really not voicing all these issues through advocacy, through you know protesting, through whatever, nothing's going to change. Like people outside of those camps are not going to hear anything, you know. So I think there really has to be a bridge between organizations like Burma Task Force and other NGOs that especially do advocacy. Um, they should really get in touch with people in the field. Um, or they themselves should go there, you know, occasionally um, do, yeah, like a, a PR um, a campaign or whatever. Uh, just so you can also show people the changing context. I think one thing that people really get wrong um, in the West, NGOs that really want to help uh, refugees, we put them in a very stagnant position. We put them in like, oh, they're always suffering. They're always just like stuck in this really, you know, crazy hardship. Um, it's always the same old, th- you know, sad images. You really have to change that. You have to show that the community is evolving. Yes, there's hardship, but there's also a lot of progress. There's also, and people like to see that. People like to see progress. Right. If you do a GoFundMe, like, you don't want to just be stuck in like, you know, a thousand dollars where you did nothing. You know, you want right. to see that week by week there's there's progress. So that's what you have to show people um, in the West. You have to show that the Rohingya community, yes, they, you know, came through this really traumatic experience, They, but now they're overcoming it. But here are the new challenges that they're facing, you know. Here are the challenges of, you know, trying to, um, you know, live side by side with the community that necessarily doesn't want them. Or um, here are more... Um, real-life, academic, educational, health-related issues that they're facing that they need help with, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it has to it has to evolve. The response has to evolve. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So as, as an additional question, um, as somebody who's been to the camps, what would your ideal situation be to, like, you know, uh, bring... Uh, help better the lives of the Rohingya people in terms of either maybe relocation or maybe bringing more resources towards the camps? Like, what's what's the future of the Rohingya? Yeah. Well, the future of the Rohingya is, of course, a very um, pressing question. Yeah. Um, and also a question that I, I guess I don't have the authority to answer, but at the same time, some conjecture can be made. Um, they definitely cannot go back, and this is me, the humanitarian speaking, simply because if you do believe in the betterment of people, if you do believe in the security and safety of people, you can't just send them back, to, you can't throw someone in the you know, planes again, you know, right. you just save them, you're not going to throw them back, right? right? And even if the the place, uh, Myanmar, is saying, oh, we'll take them back, you know, etc., in what conditions are they going to take them back, right? right? You really have to think about that. And having been in Myanmar, the situation didn't get any better. You know, it's not like all of a sudden they're like pro Rohingya or whatever. In certain cases, it got worse. You know, because they're like, oh, we're in international spotlight, and they're the ones that put us in that spotlight. Yeah. We don't like them. We don't want them, right? right. Um, so there's a lot of that. But in Bangladesh, um, I don't think relocation, even internally to other parts of Bangladesh, would be helpful. Um, definitely creating a means of like you know economic. Um, 
subsistence and self-reliance that's going to be really helpful trying to create something that will bring an income for them in a way because you know at the end of the day people's lives are based on livelihoods you know giving someone something to do giving someone an identity is really important in terms of work and career etc the other thing also hypothetically speaking um, just building better structures you know instead of having super congested you know, makeshift camps where the bamboo flies away every monsoon. Um, just having stronger structures, multi-story, um, doesn't have to be huge and grandiose, but having things that resemble a neighborhood. Remember, these are communities that were, you know, very intrinsically, you know, uh, related to their soil, to their neighborhood, to their, you know, kin, and all that was broken down right. in this traumatic experience. So if you can rebuild some semblance of that through neighborhood structure, um, that would help a lot, yeah. you know. Uh, but unfortunately, there's a government mandate that no concrete buildings can be made in, in the camp. So, yeah, yeah, a lot of hurdles. All right, well, I just want to thank you so much for giving us your time. Yeah. All right. We thank our brother, Mohammed Tanvir, for providing us with that uh, audio footage, with that interview. And we thank you for listening. And remember... If you haven't already done so, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. Uh, you also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Radio Islam USA. So both fields, whether it's social media or looking for uh, the latest podcast, or if you want to go through our catalog, we've got, you know, tons, hours and hours, probably weeks and weeks of, uh, of audio that you can uh, listen to and go through and, and revisit. So you can do that. You will find us, as I said, at Radio Islam USA. So we want to thank once again our sponsor, Recycle Processes. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. With that, we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.